Uh, it's exciting to be back with, with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is my first week back, and in two weeks, my wife had a baby. Uh, yes, just recently. His name is Whit Williams. He was born on September 20th, uh, and he and mom are doing well and are at home just figuring it out this morning. So glad to be here with you guys. Uh, and I'm glad to be home with them when I'm home, just for the record, but glad to be here. Uh, and uh, and I'm so thankful for uh, the fact that we get to be a part of a movement here at Midtown, that uh, here at Midtown East, we're a part of a, of a broader family. There are five other Midtown congregations meeting across the city this morning, and that's in many ways a gift to me as your pastor, that when I'm out for things like my wife having a baby, there are other people who can be here and preach. And it's a gift to us because we get to be a part of this mission that God is advancing throughout the city uh, in so many different places and ways. So uh, yeah, excited to, to be a part of that here this morning. I'm going to invite June to come up. June Joseph is reading our scripture for us this morning, which is out uh, of the book of Acts, which is, uh, which is uh, the book that we've been working through this fall. And June has a fairly large chunk of scripture to read this morning. So are you good? So it'll be up here on the screen if you want to follow along while June reads. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts Oh, let me remember what chapter we're in. Acts 7. Yeah, June knows. Okay. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him to the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow... This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Jesus, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Thanks, June. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, Lord, for a story that uh, is intense, that's, that's in many ways, Lord, very sad. Uh, and ask that you would be speaking to us through it this morning. That you, would you be in encouraging us, strengthening us, and reminding us uh, of your sovereignty over your mission and over our world, over, yeah, over our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So re- reading through this passage, uh, it it seems far away from our lives, doesn't it? The idea of someone being stoned, being, living, living in a society where someone could be stoned, that, that what happened with Stephen is that uh, there were people who, who literally picked up rocks and started throwing them at him until he died. That's what this story is about. This is mob justice really at its worst. And, and that, that scene is, is hard for us to imagine. It seems so far away. I th- and I think S- Stephen as a, as a character, as the hero of the story, uh, is also hard for us to, to, to understand. Is it hard for you to imagine believing in something so much that you'd be willing to let people throw rocks at you for it? Is, is that challenging for anybody else? And it's tempting with this story to kind of do a deep dive on our own psychology and ask, wow, do I believe, uh, do I believe the gospel enough to be stoned for it myself? Friends, that is not a helpful question. Shame, it's, it's a powerful motivator, and it's a motivator with which we are all deeply familiar, but this morning we are going in a different direction. This, this is not about shaming you with the story of Stephen. What I want to talk about first is the source of Stephen's significance. And then we'll talk about what it means that the gospel, uh, when it's preached, is always opposed. So Stephen's significance, and then we'll talk about, uh, talk about opposition and how we encounter it, what we do with it when it comes. But what we see in this passage, first of all, is that Stephen has something that we all want. Stephen has something that we're all searching for. Stephen has found something that he believes is worth dying for, which means he's found something that he believes is worth living for. One of my favorite bands, Switchfoot, would have said it like this. This is a deep cut, so if you don't know the lyric, it's okay. It says, all of your hoping, all of your searching for what? Ask me for what am I living and what gives me strength that I'm willing to die for? Right, that those two things are deeply connected, that, uh, that to be someone who is willing to die for something means that there's something significant that we found that we're living toward. If you found something you're willing to die for, it means you've found something significant to invest your life in. 
You found someone who's discovered meaning and purpose and significance, and we're all searching for significance. It's the homework assignment we've all been handed from the cradle. It's deep in the psychology of our world, deep in psychology of the late modern West. It's the legacy of existentialism in our society. It's the journey of, uh, of Mitch Album in Tuesdays with Maury. Did any of you read that book? I was looking back. Okay, so Tuesdays with Maury is this story about a sports reporter who was on the top of his game, kind of had everything, and then realized, there's nothing, my, my life is empty, it's hollow, what am I living for? And so he goes and he connects with this university professor who changed his life, and, and he finds, he rediscovers what it means to, to find the meaning in life. This book spent 23 weeks on the top of the New York Times bestseller list, and four years on the list overall. Also, it was published in 1999 which, just as a side note, made me, anyway, made me feel old. Uh, every generation has stories like that, right, of our search for meaning, for significance. It's the core contention of man's search for meaning, this book by Viktor Frankl. It's a man who endured a concentration camp, and, and what he said is that if you, can ha- if you can discover your why for living, a hope and a purpose for the future that anchors you in the present. And what what Frankel says very bluntly is that there is no overarching purpose for life, but that each one of us as men and women out in the world are responsible for searching for, for finding that meaning for ourselves. And so we're left with a sense that we are kind of adrift in this cold, dark universe, searching for something that's gonna make us matter to give us significance. We have to find our why, this something worth living for, this something worth dying for even. And that's in all of us. Sure, that fire may have burned a little bit brighter or hotter when you were younger, right? But it's still in there. And yet, to be on a search for our significance is at the root to believe that we are without significance, without meaning, until we found the thing or until we've made it for ourselves. That until we've found something big enough, until we've found something that makes us feel like we matter, we don't. And that search for meaning is incredibly unstable. That from that perspective, even when we have found something that we feel like is worth giving our lives to, we find that even there, that calling does not suffer very well because as soon as that that purpose uh, stops making us feel like we have meaning, we're obligated to leave it and go find a different purpose. But Stephen, here in this passage, he seems to have found something different. He's got something at the core of his life that is guiding guiding him, something that's worth living for, something that's worth dying for. And Stephen, what what we see is that he is not primarily guided. uh, he's, He's not giving up his life for an idea, like freedom or progress. 
He's not giving up his life for, an, for his nation, for his people, for his clan. It's not for an ideology or a religion or an organization with a compelling mission. No, in verse 56, what Stephen sees right before he is stoned is a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus. And this changes everything. Because what it tells us is that Stephen is not primarily a person who has found his significance, that first and foremost, Stephen is a person who has been found, who has been found by a person, who's been found by the person of Jesus. Think about how Jesus himself describes his mission. Right? This is Luke 19.10. Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come. I have come, he says, to what? To seek and to save the lost. That Jesus has come to find us, to find you, to find you because of how much he cares for you, because of how much he loves you. And what that means is that our search for significance is over. That we're a people who have been found. That you can rest. That you have been found significant. You matter. Not because of what you have done, not because of what you have found, but because you have a Savior who has found you significant. To whom you mattered enough that he would come and lay down his life for you. And relationship relationship is at, is, is at the heart of significance. Like, think with me for a second. Uh, if, you know, you've been asked, if you've ever been asked the question, uh, what would you save from your house if it was burning down? You know, like, assuming that your family, your pets, everyone is safe, right? And you, you have the chance to, to pull something out of the burning house. What is it that you're going to pull out? Think about it for a second. What would it be? Okay, for me? Uh, comes to mind really quickly. It's my grandma's Bible. Now, if you were running out of my house and it was burning down, you would not grab that, would you? No, of course not, because it has no meaning to you. You have no, you have no relationship with my grandma, although I have talked about her numerous times from up front, right? That Bible means nothing to you. You have no relationship with it. You have your own items that are charged with significance because of the relationships that are connected to those things, because of the relationship that you have, maybe even with the object itself, it's relationship that gives us significance. Then you are secure and significant in your relationship with Jesus. It's a significance that you take with you wherever you go, into every conversation, into every circumstance. When you open your eyes in the morning, when you and I, when we open our eyes in the morning, first thing, right? Before you have done anything, before you have said anything, before you've achieved anything, before you have read your Bible, before you've muttered a prayer, before any of those things, what is true about you in that moment is that you are significant, that you matter. And the stage upon which Stephen was living out his foundness, his identity as someone who had been found, it happened to be very large and dramatic. 
And while you may not have the opportunity every day to be stoned to death by an angry mob, I hope not. I promise you, what you and I do have every day is the opportunity to die to ourselves. To die to the pride, to the shame, to the self-focus that would keep us shackled to the need to prove our own significance. And every day we are given the opportunity to live out of our foundedness just like Stephen. We've talked about how this series that we're in in Acts, it's about the adventure of bearing witness. That adventure is about us bringing the significance of who we are in Christ into every circumstance in which we find ourselves, trusting that no matter how small, no matter how boring or insignificant or rote a situation feels, that we come into it not asking, Lord, what does this tell me about me, but coming as people who are full of the Holy Spirit, like Stephen, coming as a people who are full of grace, who are full of power, who are full of wisdom, who are full of God's Holy Spirit. We don't have to evaluate our circumstances to ask, what, is they, what do they tell me about me? No, we're a people who already have it with us wherever we go. That sounds good, right? Is that ever hard to believe? Like when you're washing the dishes again, you know? For us at our house, it's when we're cleaning up the house at the end of the day again. You're like, didn't we just do this? When you're there entering the data into the spreadsheet, you know, like you do, beep, beep, boop, boop. When you're dealing with the customer across, across the counter from you who is, so, who is so rude, who doesn't seem to treat you as a person, even in those circumstances, especially in all of those circumstances, what is true about you is that you are a person who has significance because you have a Jesus who has come and has found you and who is with you wherever you go. And in this adventure of bearing witness, we see that Stephen is, is not so far from our daily lives after all. In a sense, we're all martyrs, right? Which comes from that same root word as witness. As we die to ourselves and rest in the significance that we've been given. And that witness, is a, it's a witness of action. It's a witness of words. Remember, Stephen is one of the people who has chosen to wait tables. That's how the apostles characterize it. He was one of the people that was chosen to, to distribute food to meet the needs of this growing community. And apparently, while he's out running these errands, he's also uh, doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's also out declaring the gospel as he's going about uh, this charge that he's been given by the church. And that witness, the witness in word, the witness in deed, what happens in Stephen's life is that it provokes opposition. The Christ-oriented witness, it provokes opposition. And that's true about any, any, any adventure. That when you're living for something worth living for, what's always going to happen is it's always going to provoke opposition. There are always going to be obstacles that you encounter in that kind of living, in that, in that adventure. An adventure without opposition, without obstacles, it's not even a story. It's not even an adventure, right? 
like uh, when, you're tr when you're traveling somewhere. You never talk about the travel unless there has been an obstacle for the travel, right? Like when I get on an airplane and fly home to see my family in California and I get to the airport on time and the plane takes off on time and the plane arrives on time, I never tell anybody about the flight. That was not an adventure. It just happened. Now, when I show up at the airport and we're squeezing in right before the plane takes off and we get to the counter and find out that there's no reservation for us on this airline, right? And then we find out that that's because we're at the wrong airline, so we have to go to the other airline, and they walk us over, and then we get on the plane, and the plane is late, and then we arrive at our rental car. We have to go through three rental cars to find one that has keys and doesn't smell like weed and all of these things, right? Now that, that's an adventure. That's something that we're talking about because of the opposition and the obstacles that we encounter along the way. And what's true about Stephen is true about us for our lives is that as we are living an adventure that's worth living, what will happen is that there will be opposition that we encounter. That's part of the gig. That our witness to the mission and method of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, to the grace of Jesus provokes opposition. Which was... Yeah, it was, it was, I had a hard time with that this week, recognizing that the thing that, that people are opposed to so often is grace. That that is what is stirring up the opposition in this passage, is that Stephen is boldly declaring our need for grace. Now, that may not be obvious from what we read this morning because we left out Stephen's speech, which is very long. It's an entire chapter, so I did not want June to have to read all of that, Right? But the main focus of Stephen's speech is to, is to walk, uh, walk these people that he's talking to through the history of the nation of Israel. And what he lays out for them very clearly is that all throughout their history, what they have consistently failed to do is obey God's law. That what he's reminding them is that they have a need for grace. That on their own, they are unable to live up to the good law that God has given them. That's hard to swallow. And I know it's hard to swallow for other people because I know it's hard to swallow for me. Our world resists that truth and we resist that truth, don't we? That what I so fundamentally want to believe deep down inside is that I am capable of, of earning my way to God. That I am capable of controlling my life, of justifying myself, of living in a way that is right enough to merit what I think I deserve. And Grace comes in and says, that's not true. Grace comes in and says what is true about you and what is true about me is that we are a people who are in desperate need of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And grace comes in and says God delights to do that for you. That he loves to seek and to save those who are lost. People like you and people like me. that our need for grace is it's universal. And what Stephen also points out to his opponents is that the need for grace is universal and that the offer of grace is universal. That the offer of grace is in no way restricted. That it is for everyone, especially the people that we consider our enemies. And that provokes Opposition. 
do you feel about that? That grace provokes opposition. That the person of Jesus provokes opposition. I will tell you for me that is a challenging truth. I don't know about you. I'm not a big fan of conflict personally. And the possibility of a negative reaction, even the, the, the promise of it that is made in the gospel, it can make me not want to share it. But here I am in this sermon series wrestling with what it means for me to be bold in talking about Jesus with the people around me. Doing things like inviting them to church or to a cornhole tournament, it creates tension in me. And so my goal can be, okay, well, how do, I, how do I accomplish this goal of like being obedient to the Lord, but in a way that provokes like as little opposition as possible? Do any of you relate to that at all? And what I've been challenged with in the passage this week is, is that that is that's a fear-based way of living. To live that way, to think that way, is to step out of the significance that I have been given and to look to the people around me that I am in conversation with to be the people who tell me whether or not I matter. Now, to remember that because of what Jesus has done for me, because Jesus has come and has found me, I am significant, that frees me then in any conversation to primarily, first and foremost, see and love and be curious about the person who is in front of me regardless of how they respond to that. That's what we see in Stephen. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That Stephen recognizes that the opposition that he is facing as he is being stoned is not about him. It's not about him at all. Because Stephen knows where his significance comes from, he doesn't have to be consumed with what the opposition of these people means about him. Right? He's not before them declaring and trying to prove his innocence to them. He's there declaring in front of them, even in the midst, even under the threat of being stoned, what he's declaring to them is what's true. That's not about him. He's able to see them and pray for them, to see them and forgive them, to ask God not to hold his murder against them, to see them and love them. Which is so freeing. Because now in my bearing witness, I don't have to win the argument. Because it's not about me. I don't have to have all the answers because it's not about me. I don't have to defend the church or other Christians because it's not about them. We're able to say, yes. Then when people say, I've been wounded by the church, I've been wounded, yes, of course. I don't have to minimize that or downplay that. Because I'm not defending those people. But I'm there bearing witness to Jesus. So I'm free to listen, to love, and to be curious because I am not at stake. 
And I love the way that this passage ends. Chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered about, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Stephen, right? And just think about, think about what it would be like to be a part of the church in this, in this kind of moment in time. What we have read up until this point is all about how much people respect what is happening inside of the church. We've read over and over again how much favor these new believers have with all the people. And then all of a sudden, this gets turned on its head. Rather than being loved by all the people, what they're facing is intense opposition, and an opposition that's so intense that it's forcing him to flee and to leave Jerusalem. That would be a very discouraging moment, wouldn't it? To wonder, what is this thing that I have given my life to? Who is this person I've given my life to that's provoking so much opposition from the people around me? So much opposition that it's actually driving me from my home. Whoa. It'd be easy to wonder, is this all over? Is it ending just like it ended for Jesus? No, but as, as they get driven out, they go out preaching the word. They go out boldly bearing witness. And where do they go? Well, they go to Judea and Samaria. It's the, it's the start of the spread of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about all the way in the beginning of the series. What was it, like a month ago? In Acts 1.8, we said that was the programmatic verse for the book, right? And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? But up until this point, up until chapter 8, there's no witness outside of Jerusalem. It's all there. And at the stoning of Stephen, the persecution starts to drive the church outside of Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. There's a a church father from North Africa. His name was Tertullian. He said that it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. That what he had seen happen in his own day was that the more that people pushed against the gospel, the more that people tried to shut it down by force, the more the gospel exploded in the world around him. What we see that is true about Stephen's story, what's true, uh, and what was true in Tertullian's day, what's true for us now, is that there is nothing that can hold back the mission and the work of God in our world. That even the evil acts of people who are opposing the gospel, uh, God is able to use those things for his glory and to accomplish his mission to his purposes. It was true then, it's true now that nothing can stop the mission of grace that God is on in our world. It will move forward. It's like one of those automatic car washes, you know? You pull in, you put it in neutral, and it's just moving forward. That's it. It's happening. And then we as a people have been invited to be a part of that work. However big or however small it may appear in the moment, The call for us is not to be out searching for our significance now, but to rest in the significance that we've been given.
I mean, as a people who are full of the Holy Spirit, that we get to take that out into, into whatever conversation, into whatever circumstance we are going out into. And we don't have control over what God is going to do with that. What I pray for and hope for for East Nashville is that we would see revival in this part of our city, right? That we would see the gospel fill it up and, and transform it, that we would see it transforming people's lives, yes. That's what we hope for, what we pray for, what we ask God to do with our witness, and yet we turn that over to him to say, Lord, you will do what you want to do. We can trust you with the results of that. Even in the face of, in the midst of opposition, we can trust that you are at work. And what happens is we are engaged in that bearing witness. What we come to learn and to realize and to lean on, to be transformed by, is, is the grace that we are proclaiming to other people is the same grace that is changing us. That no matter how the message is received with, with open arms, with opposition, with opposition that turns into open arms, that, that all that time what God is also doing is that he's working in us. I will tell you, that has been true for me as we've been walking through this series. Uh, as I stand up here and talk about what it means to boldly proclaim the gospel, I just have to be honest with you guys. Uh, I am preaching to myself as much as I am preaching to you. That's a hard thing for me and something that I find myself growing in as well. And yet, as I, as I pray the prayer that we talked about a few weeks ago, God, would you give me boldness? What I am experiencing is that God is changing my life through that prayer. But this is as much about God changing me as what he is doing out in the world around us. And my prayer and my hope for us as a community is that, is that as we are on mission with Jesus, that we also ourselves would be being changed that we'd be discovering living out of more and more fully the significance that we have in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have come and found us. Lord, we we repent of all of the ways that we are out so often searching for our significance, Lord, when, uh, when we already have it and have it in and through our relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you would be strengthening us, growing us, uh, rooting us firmly in that reality. Lord, as we, as we worship you now, as we praise you now, we ask that, you would be, uh, that you'd be strengthening us in that reality. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.